Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, and joining me once again today on the show is Eric Hayden, no stranger to the podcast. He's the founder and CEO of Urban Catalyst, joining us today from Urban Catalyst headquarters in downtown San Jose, California. Eric, great to see you. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Jimmy, always great to see you. Such a pleasure to be here. Absolutely, Eric. uh, Pleasure to be with you here today once again. You're a prolific podcast guest. I'll be sure to uh, link to some of your previous podcast appearances in the show notes for today's episode. And our viewers, listeners can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Uh, Eric, for listeners and viewers who are not familiar with Urban Catalyst, can you give us a background on you, what Urban Catalyst does, and what makes Urban Catalyst unique from some other fund managers? Sure, Jimmy. So Urban Catalyst, We are a real estate development company. Uh, We're focused on doing ground up real estate development in downtown San Jose, California. Although we've done real estate development all over the San Francisco Bay Area, we're also pretty good at owning and managing real estate. We have a pretty significant portfolio. you know, overall, we've been raising opportunity zone funds, you know, tax advantage funds that allow investors uh, some tax benefits while they invest into ground up real estate development. We've been very successful in our fundraising. We had our first fund that we closed in 2020. It was a $131 million fund. Uh, we did six projects with that fund. Uh, we're currently raising our second Opportunity Zone fund. It's a $200 million fund, and we're off to a great start fundraising. Excellent. Well, let's talk about uh, the market and and specifically where you guys are located also during down markets like what we're experiencing right now, why is the location of OZ projects more important than ever? And, and specifically, maybe you can uh, address the question of why San Jose? Why is San Jose an important location? Sure. You know, investors, of course, they have the option to invest into real estate, various asset classes and locations all over the world and all over the country. But when you think about which markets historically have been very strong markets for real estate investment, one of the first that comes to mind is Silicon Valley, because the track record here in Silicon Valley has been almost unmatched anywhere else in the world over the last 40 or 50 years. Now, of course, Jimmy, uh, past performance does not predict future results. That's something the SEC likes me to remind all of our potential investors. But at the same time, you know what we saw, especially during the pandemic, was really interesting here in the Valley. So this is a little example for you. Starting in about July of 2020, uh, we started seeing existing office buildings. So office buildings that are already built with tenants. We started seeing the transaction volume double or almost triple as far as the number of sales. And they were selling for these record or near record pricing. And this continued for almost 18 months. And you would think in the middle of the pandemic, when everyone was questioning, you know, work from home, you know, is it real? Is it going to last for a long time? Why would we see office transactions just go off the charts here in the Valley. And really our speculation as the answer is a lot of the big in institutional equity groups and publicly traded office REITs, you know, that had a business plan to raise money and invest into office product in the United States. They saw Silicon Valley as that safe harbor because of our strong job growth. I mean, we have huge companies now 
as well as our midsize and our startups. I mean, you think back 20 years, 20 years ago, when you thought .com, you thought, oh, pets.com did a commercial in the Super Bowl. At that time, there was no meta. Google was a startup. Uh, and now Google is gigantic. So is Meta. Even with their layoffs, it's just kind of a drop in the bucket for their total employee count. I mean, we're seeing such strong growth with the big companies, but also the midsize and the small companies. So to the point as to Silicon Valley and how strong has the real estate market been historically, it's been extremely strong. We find that a lot of our investors, you know, when they look at Urban Catalyst, obviously they like our assets that we're developing. They like our development team. But when they see Opportunity Zone in downtown San Jose, Silicon Valley, and that really gets them excited as to, you know, the type of real estate that Silicon Valley has had over the years. And then to your other question, you know, why downtown San Jose specifically? You know, in, in the 80s, San Jose named itself, its mantra, the, the capital of Silicon Valley. And while it's a great uh, tagline, it hasn't necessarily been true. I mean, really... Mountain View, Palo Alto, Menlo Park, that is the center of Silicon Valley right there. By All San of those areas a little bit north of San Jose or north, yeah. northwest of San Jose, right? Only about 15 miles, but it's taken a number of years for these office tenants to really expand their footprints as they grew you know, all over the country. Uh, all over the valley, they've been slowly expanding southward. And you and I have talked about the, you know, what we call tech migration. But really, San Jose, about five years ago, the private markets finally caught up with it. So as far as ground-up development is concerned, uh, now and for the last five years, it's really been the time to start that process here in downtown San Jose. And that's really why we're here. Yeah, it does seem like uh, I remember just walking around downtown San Jose about a year and a half ago now when I was out there visiting you guys. Adobe's down there, Zoom's down there, uh, but by and large, a lot of the downtown San Jose San Jose area has gotten left behind, I guess. It's a little bit run down in some parts, uh, but it kind of stands right in the path of, of progress. Is that a fair way to characterize it, it? It absolutely does. You know, a lot of people after they come and they visit downtown San Jose, what they say is they say, this is exactly like Austin, Texas, like 10 years mm -hmm. ago. This is, you know, we can see the history and everything, but as you point out, some parts are a little more run down, but then there's also these brand new buildings, these really cool new retail areas. And the development has just started. It really was only about five years ago that suddenly everything started to pencil in downtown. And that's when we saw just a flood of big tech companies coming into downtown and huge developers just acquiring land like crazy because uh, the writing was on the wall. The secret was out. Downtown San Jose was happening. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your projects in downtown San Jose. Urban Catalyst OZ Fund One had, I, I can't remember how many projects ahead and six or eight or so, I think, and uh, a, diverse, a diversified portfolio of projects. Uh, could you tell us a little more about what they are and how they're progressing so far? Sure. So our fund one projects, we have six projects. Uh, it is a variety of asset classes. We have two smaller office projects. Uh, we have a senior living facility, a student housing project, uh, multifamily apartments, and we have an extended state business hotel. So those are the six projects. We've been making great progress on these projects. I mean, obviously COVID uh, through the financing markets for a little bit of a loop, not terrible, but not great. And now we've exited COVID into rising inflation, rising interest rates, and a lot of uncertainty. Uh, that all being said, we did 
start one of our office projects and fund one. Our Paseo project, it's almost complete. We've got the entire ground floor leased out. And we just had an office tenant tour, a potential office tenant. That was very uh, positive news for us. We think we're going to land them. Uh, besides that, we broke ground on our senior living facility earlier this year. Uh, we plan on starting construction going vertical on our uh, hotel in January of next year. So that's kind of what we're really focused on right now is getting that hotel out of the ground. And we do expect to start uh, several of our other projects throughout the course of the year, including our apartments and our uh, student housing facility. Well, we mentioned, I wanted to actually back up for a minute and, and I recognize that we mentioned some of the uh, demographic or, or trend related benefits of doing projects in downtown San Jose. Are there any other benefits to developing in downtown San Jose? When I think of California, I don't think of a particularly developer-friendly type of regulatory environment, but is San, is San Jose a little bit different? Well, you know, that's it's great that you said that the regulatory environment throughout California is very difficult, not only from an environmental perspective, but also because most of the cities are anti-development. If city council members approve projects, they're not going to get reelected. And mm -hmm. Sometimes they call that walking the political plank because they know that the project should be there. They know that that's, the, that's what's good for their city, good for society, but they can't approve them because of the resistance of the neighbors, because of traffic and height, uh, parking and all of those things. Uh, San Jose, as far as citywide, isn't a whole lot better than its neighbors, except in the downtown core. And that's where all of our projects are located. The downtown core, they want to see high density development and they want to see it now. And a lot of that is because of the leadership of San Jose, the mayor, Sam Licardo, he's been the mayor for eight years. And before that, he was a council member representing downtown for eight years. He's put in policies that have really promoted development and attracted developers like us and just made it so much easier for us to get our projects through that governmental process. In fact, Jimmy, of our six projects in Fund 1 and our two projects in Fund 2, we now have approval for all of those projects pretty much in the exact same form that we initially proposed them. And that is uh, really saying something as far as uh, California to go eight for eight like that is uh, it's not as common as you would think. No, I wouldn't imagine it would be. Uh, well, let, let's talk about your two projects that are in Urban Catalyst Opportunity Zone Fund 2. We talked about the first six that are in Fund 1. Uh, the two projects in Fund 2 are, are called Icon, Echo. What, what can you tell us about them? Sure. Icon is a 500,000 square foot office high rise. And Echo is just about 400 units of multifamily apartments. And, you know, these projects, why did we choose these asset classes to build in this location? And a lot of that is we really like this location for office, especially right on Santa Clara Street uh, in the downtown. That's kind of the, you know, the main drag of the central business district. And it's right next to a future BART station. BART, of course, the largest mass transportation system here in the Bay Area. So it's really the epitome of transit-oriented development. Uh, we've seen office rents, uh, well, we haven't seen them decrease throughout COVID. There's been a lot of talk about return to office, and yes, the Bay Area is somewhat lagging the rest of the country in return to office. But as of the last couple of months, we're seeing that trend of return to office accelerate pretty significantly around here. Um, office location is really important. And then it's kind of an old cliche, Jimmy, they call it the flight to quality, which is tech tenants, they like to locate in the newest, coolest, you know, best locations. They want to be near uh, awesome restaurants, retail, uh, cultural institutions, some of the arts, and downtown San Jose has all of that. 
And to be able to build a brand new building with huge floor plates, which is really kind of the new big thing when it comes to office development is you need these minimum 40,000 square foot floor plates. When we build our uh, icon project, uh, really we're not competing with any of the existing office stock in downtown San Jose because the majority of those only have maximum 22,000 square foot floor plates. It's almost as if we're reinventing what class A office is here in the downtown. So we feel great about our office product, uh, despite the headwinds against it and really a lot of the negative news around it over the last year, year and a half. And then our multifamily project, I mean, multifamily or any type of housing in California is kind of a no-brainer. I mean, we have here in California a housing crisis. We literally can't build housing fast enough to meet our demand. Uh, for example, here in Silicon Valley, if we wanted to build enough housing to have supply equal demand, we'd have to build around 150,000 housing units. And we've never built more than 5,000 housing units in a single year in history. So that's really how far behind the eight ball we are. Um, you can see our population here grows exactly as fast as we are building housing units. That's because we just have so many jobs here. We have so many jobs that the employers, they can't even fill the amount of jobs with people. Really, we, our biggest problem with our economy here in the Valley is we don't have enough humans to fill the jobs. Uh, this lack of housing has really driven up housing prices, both for sale and for rent. Uh, I just read an article this morning, uh, updates on the San Jose housing market. Our new median home price is almost $1.7 million. We're the most expensive city to live in, big city to live in, in the United States, and the fourth most expensive big city to live in in the entire world. I mean, 1.7 million will get you a nice 1960s ranch style, three bedroom, two bath. Hmm. And that translates to apartment rents. Apartment rents are really driven by two things. One is tech salaries and tech salaries around here have gone up 30% over the last year, year and a half. And they're also driven by the affordability of housing. Uh, our housing prices are completely unaffordable. And then at the same time with rising interest rates, it makes it even less affordable. So those two factors really drive the rents and We've seen rents go up significantly over the last year. We're now 7% uh, higher than pre-COVID, our multifamily rents. And, and we're 10% up year over year. CBRE and Colliers have both sent out their forecasts and they're both projecting double digit rent increases over the next 12 to 18 months because of these, call it uh, macroeconomic factors. Yeah, probably a combination of inflation. And like you mentioned before, too many jobs and, and not enough uh, housing to house all of the humans that need to fill those jobs. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's exactly right. So uh, we heard you talk about the tech migration a moment ago. And you know, we talked about how San Jose is probably the next place where Silicon Valley's and the companies in Silicon Valley are going to flow south into. Can you tell us about some of the recent activities by big tech companies leasing space in San Jose? Sure. So kind of the latest big news was that ByteDance just took 700,000 square feet about a mile north of downtown San Jose. ByteDance, of course, the parent company of TikTok. Mm -hmm. um, that was headlines recently. But last year in Q4, we saw Meta take 1.2 million square feet, about five miles outside of town down in, uh, in Santa Clara. Uh, here in the downtown, though, we're really excited. Adobe just completed their 
just about a million square feet of new office. It's their fourth high-rise tower. They're all right next to each other. They built sky bridges in between them. And they announced not only are they bringing their employees back for three days a week, but they'll also be outfitting their new building with 3,800 more employees uh, come Q1 of next year. So that's been great. Uh, recently, and we've talked about this before, the, the biggest news in downtown San Jose over the last five years has been Google's massive acquisitions here in the downtown over a half a billion dollars of land acquired over 80 acres. To put that to scale, Jimmy, you know our Fund 2 project with these two high-rises, we have two acres of property. Google has 80. Uh, Google not only uh, got their approvals for 7 million square feet of office and 6,000 residential units, but they also broke ground last month doing their infrastructure improvements. And their infrastructure is so significant, they're rebuilding the streets. They're relocating where the streets go. They're building 16 acres of turnkey parks. And so they've started all of those improvements. Um, they're planning a 10-year build-out, $19 billion. So it's great to see them moving dirt, getting started, just showing you know, Silicon Valley sees downtown San Jose as its next place of massive growth. And uh, you know, we're, we're right there uh, on the cusp of that. We've been taking advantage of that with our land acquisition over the last few years. Yeah, it must be an exciting place to be. I wanted to revisit Icon Echo for a moment. You mentioned two acres. Uh, it encompasses one city block, two different projects, but on the same mm -hmm. city block. What, can you tell us a little more about uh, the status of, of those projects? Have you broken ground yet? Have you acquired everything you need to in order to start construction? Or wh when will construction begin and be completed, do you estimate? Sure. So we acquired uh, just about half, a little more than half of an entire downtown San Jose city block. It is two separate projects. So they will be on separate parcels, financed separately, uh, sold separately, all of those things, which is important. You want to have that kind of flexibility. Um, at the same time, because we have a larger call it space to work with, you know, like our fund one projects average about a half acre in size each. So to have the two acres, it makes our projects, we can build in a lot of construction efficiencies. And that's important, right? Because you have the same net rentable, but if you have less hallways, less parking, less areas that are just sort of extra areas, it does make it so that you can have that efficiency in it. That makes your project models look a lot better and it provides higher returns for our investors. Uh, the project is four parcels. We've acquired three of the four parcels. We're going to be acquiring the fourth parcel later this month. We had anticipated acquiring it last month, but we have this caveat that the seller wants us to pull building permits and break ground prior to acquiring the property. And we are pulling our first permits and doing some of our uh, offsite underground utility work uh, starting in January. And so that really is the trigger for us to be able to acquire the property. We've had the money to acquire for a long time. We've been in a binding option contract for a long time. So this is just really finalizing the last details for that acquisition. So those are the four properties. We, as I mentioned, now have full approval from the city council uh, to build the two projects. And while, you know, for us, that wasn't, you know, the biggest thing in the world, right? I mean, we expected that the entire time. We've been raising money in this fund for almost two years and we didn't have the project approvals. But in downtown San Jose, I don't want to say it's like checking a box because it takes so much work for our team, uh, our positioning as developers and fund managers to be able to do that and make it look so easy and completely expected. It, it is in general, the largest uh, development risk associated with development in the state of California is getting the right to be able to build your projects. So we now have approvals to build those projects. Um, 
we also here at Urban Cattles really pride ourselves in the pre-construction process on how we create our construction documentation. I will be submitting our full construction document package for the residential portion of uh, Icon Echoes, the Echo portion, uh, three weeks from now. So usually, you know, developers, they get their approvals, then they go draw their construction documents. And that'll take, I don't know, four to six months to draw them. We've been drawing them this entire time, and now we're going to be submitting them. We should have building permit permits ready to go vertical on Echo um, around late summer, so call it July, August of uh, next year. Uh, we could start construction as soon as that. Uh, we're projecting just, you know, give it a little bit of time that we'll be starting in Q4 of next year on the ICON, and then, or sorry, on Echo. And then ICON, the office portion, we plan on starting in Q2 of 2024. And that really has more to do with our uh, total fundraising for our Opportunity Zone Fund. You know, we have the funds, we can start ECHO right now. Uh, so that really, as soon as we get our building permit, we should get that one going. But we need to continue to raise to hit that $200 million mark at the end of next year uh, to start the office component. Now, I don't want to talk about Opportunity Zone fundraising in a minute, but I just wanted to talk multifamily with you uh, for, for one more minute here. First, uh, ECHO, the multifamily project, uh, it seems like it's in pretty good shape right now from a demand side. I would imagine uh, the multifamily market is really strong right now with with rising rents. As you mentioned a few moments ago, Eric, rents are about as high as you could possibly expect. There have been huge uh, rental rate increases over the past 12 months or so. Uh, do you think those rental rate increases, increases are sustainable or what's what's your take overall on how uh, the multifamily market may may impact your projects. Sure, and, and by the way, Jim, when we think multifamily, you know, especially in our Fund One projects, we're also looking at how that trickles down to our senior living, our student housing, even our extended stay business hotel. Because typical residents in our hotel stay for 15 days, some stay for six months. It's almost like kind of shorter term housing than uh, apartments, longer term housing than uh, a traditional hotel. Sure. So, so we're not we're not just talking about Echo. We're talking about all of your multifamily and multifamily adjacent Fund One projects yeah, as well, if, right? If folks are if folks are living in the building, you know, we're seeing the rents go up. And while I mentioned before, that's not great for society. We have some of the most expensive housing out there. Uh, it does work well for our models, but there are really three things that go into our models that make them look better. Uh, the first is, of course, are your rents going up? Because that's your gross revenue. And that's always important. And that's really one of the most important things. But that's something that I really can't control. What I can control is how much it costs to build these buildings, how I design them, how I maximize that efficiency, reduce those costs. You can design beautiful buildings that are sustainable and green and then fit all the requirements a tenant wants without breaking your budget as long as you have a professional development team that's done it before and knows what they're up to. So we've designed these buildings in the most cost-effective way. And what we're seeing just in the market in general for construction cost increases is during COVID construction costs here in the Valley flatline. And that was really welcome reprieve because we'd seen construction costs double over the previous decade. We're one of the most expensive places to build uh, uh, multifamily or even office buildings in the entire world. Hmm. So, Seeing that flatline during COVID was a little bit nice. I mean, a little silver lining on an otherwise not positive market economic outlook. Uh, in earlier this year, you know, the market started to improve before we kind of hit this, you know, patch of uncertainty we're currently in. And when that happened, we started to see buildings starting to get built again. 
driving up labor prices. Labor prices are always what drives construction prices here in the Valley, a lot more so than commodities prices that you read about in the newspaper. And those labor prices, uh, again, at the end of this year have flatlined. So when you see rising rents and you see costs flatlining, that is a great position for developers to be in. Now, the third thing is also important, that is the financing markets. Financing markets, they pulled back during COVID. They've pulled back even more in this time of uncertainty. And so that has somewhat hindered our ability to start on several of our projects that otherwise would have started. It isn't that our models aren't working the way that they're supposed to, or we bought the land the wrong way, or we designed the wrong buildings. It's just that you know, maybe a certain asset class, only like 10% of the uh, lenders out there are currently lending. And of course, that's going to change, Jimmy. You know, every real estate cycle goes through cycles just like that. And we'll see that change. But in a time when rents are going up, construction costs are flat, and we're looking for that improvement in the financing markets, we're really in a good position to start a bunch of our projects uh, next year. Good. Well, good luck to you. It sounds like you're on the right track so far and uh, a lot of lot of tailwinds at your back, but some headwinds as well. And this leads me to my discussion with you about Opportunity Zone fundraising. Uh, I'm pulling up on my other monitor right now, just an article that I wrote uh, breaking down the, the Novogratic fundraising data from Q2 to Q3 of this year was largely flat. But if you look at it, uh, if you look at it uh, from a year over year perspective, fundraising's down a lot um, in Q3 compared to Q3 of the same period last year. And I, I, I think it's also fair to say that it's, it's down a little bit overall just over the last six months in general. Uh, by the way, I'll link to my article on the uh, recent Novogratz survey in the show notes for today's episode. Uh, if anybody wants to click through and take a look, but Eric, what are you seeing in terms of opportunity zone fundraising? What has your experience been? Are you concerned at all? Um, and we'll talk about December and why that might be a big month in, in a moment here. But but first, what are you seeing just the last few months? I mean, we're seeing it a lot like the rest of the market, and that is fundraising velocity has slowed down. Uh, it makes a ton of sense, right? Opportunity zone funds. Yes, we're great ground-up development funds. In general, most opportunity zone funds are ground-up development or they're the renovations of existing uh, existing assets. There are other types, but I mean, I'd say the majority fit into those two categories. And you get tax advantages for investing into these types of funds. And the, t- and the tax advantages are, well, if you had a capital gains event, you can do the following things. Problem is, is when the economy slows down, less folks have capital gains events. And that's across the board from the sale of real estate to the sale of a business, to the sale of stock. And in particular, the sale of stock. I mean, we're all watching the stock market. You know, this year it's performed very poorly. It's down 20 to 30%. And when that happens, you know, a lot of investors are like, well, I'm just going to keep my money in the stock market. It'll come back and I'll make that money back up. Or if they do sell, they're like, well, I didn't sell for that much of a profit. I don't have that many gains. And so I don't need to reinvest my gains into you know, a tax advantaged fund like Urban Catalyst Opportunity Zone Fund too, because uh, it's, it's just not a whole lot. That's not how I'm going to diversify my portfolio. And when you see that happen, yeah, you know, it's, it's something that we expect. It's why when we first opened our fund to raise 200 million, you know, we thought, well, we'll raise around 65 million a year. And we're still on that pace. And over the course of the next year, more than likely we'll hit right at that $200 million number that we initially anticipated. And Jimmy, one other thing that we found out, which I was pretty pleased with, you know, we now have 43 people that work here at Urban Catalyst. 
And uh, a lot of those folks on our fundraising team, on our marketing teams, uh, they've been doing just an amazing job. At the same time, fundraising velocity is down, but we recently saw a statistic that showed that Urban Catalyst, while we raise, more than likely we'll raise less money this year than we did last year, um, we have taken a much larger percentage of overall market share. In fact, our market share as far as fundraising has uh, uh, almost doubled, which is just a testament to the good things we're doing here in San Jose, investors liking our overall market and our projects and you know who we are as a company. So we're, we're really pleased to see that. I like showing that to my marketing folks saying, see guys, it isn't you. It's the whole world, but look at how great you're doing. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make. Your your marketing uh, campaigns and your marketing team probably uh, more efficient and doing better work this year than they were last year, just because of one more year's worth of experience, right? And and, and a larger and team. The, the data and the data that we get about successful campaigns are not successful and how mm-hmm. well that works. Uh, but yeah, it's all it's all led that. to possibly a, a little bit of a downtick in terms of fundraising, just due to external factors and. Market uncertainty. I think market uncertainty and market downturns have led to investor uncertainty, investor hesitation, maybe a flight to safety, and and opportunistic or uh, you know development real estate funds. Uh, not exactly the, the the safest place to park your cash. It, it's it's more of an opportunistic type play. And and like you mentioned, you know those are all opportunity zone funds with the requirement for new construction or heavy rehabilitation, heavy renovation, what have you. You're not going to find core or, or, or light value add type type plays in this industry, just by the very nature of how the statute is written in the letter and intent uh, of the, no. the law. We, we have our place in an investor's portfolio. Mm-hmm. And in general, we have higher returns just based on the additional risk associated sure. with development than especially like owning existing real estate assets. But I mean, if you think about it, it's investors right now are thinking, man, bond rates, are, maybe we should buy some bonds. I mean, it's yeah. It's some folks are saying, you know, this year I'm just going to pay my taxes and hold it in cash because I just want to keep that cash to make myself feel better that, you know, as we go through this, how bad will it get? And if it gets terrible, I just want to know that I'm going to be okay. And so, you know, it's, it's totally normal. It isn't really, I would say, phasing us a whole lot. Uh, we planned on doing a three-year fundraise. We are right on track as far as our fundraising velocity. And to all those investors out there, you know, fundraising risk is a real risk. And it is something that everybody should ask about because if a fund doesn't raise the amount of money it says it's going to raise, they might have issues with building their projects. Uh, I do want to say, you know, it's very traditional for developers. And of course, we've been developers for a long time to put in about 10% of the funds into a total capital stack. So, if, you know, like, for example, I'm doing a hundred million dollar building. I'm going to put in about, call it 10 million. Uh, our opportunity zone fund for fund two has around $700 million worth of projects. That means 10%, I need about 70 million. Now you add in some of our you know, fundraising costs and other things, you know, maybe 100 million is our minimum as far as how comfortable we want to be. And we've already hit, well, we're almost at 120 million in funds raised. So we've already hit our minimum. We're not particularly concerned that even if we stop fundraising today, we wouldn't be able to build our projects. However, we always anticipated we we're going to raise around 200 million and that's still our goal. And it's really still what we expect to hit. Good. Uh, well, good luck to you. And uh, it, the good news is we are in a pretty good time of year. This episode's airing in mid-December with less than three weeks to go until year end. And I don't know, it's kind of become um, a, a a rule of thumb in the Opportunity Zone industry and maybe in the 
uh, investing industry as a whole, but it certainly seems to be true for Opportunity Zones that December seems to be the biggest month of the year for fundraising. Uh, Novogratz data seems to support that, by the way, Q4, they report on a quarterly basis and Q4 is always by far and away the the biggest fundraising quarter. Uh, why is that, Eric? And and do you see similar trends and what are you expecting this December and, and in the last few weeks for Urban Catalyst as we round you know, out 2022? You, you hit the nail on the head there, Jimmy. We always see huge Q4s and especially giant Decembers as far as fundraising velocity. Um, you know, our statistics here at Urban Catalyst, we raise about 50% of our annual fundraise in Q4, and we raise about 35% of our annual fundraise in December alone. So you can see it, it is always a big month for us. We're always excited. We have a rule here at Urban Catalyst. No one takes vacations in December because we are so busy with incoming investors. It's hard for us to even handle the volume that we get. In fact, we beef up and prepare for this all year long. Um, and a lot of that is because as a tax advantaged fund, you know, folks have 180 days from the day of their capital gains event to invest. But a lot of times they want to do their opportunity zone fund investment in the same calendar year that they had their capital gains event, just to make their taxes simpler when they pay them in April. And so here you got a lot of folks and they're sitting there going, you know, I had a great year. They start thinking about their taxes and they go, oh man, I have so much in capital gains taxes. I should do something about that. Well, if I'm going to do something, I should do it this year. So I don't like have to mess around on my tax returns and file augmented returns. Like what if I have to pay and then I get my money refunded. I don't really want to do that. Let's just invest in December and make it really simple. And so in December, like clockwork, investors start calling and calling and calling. They start coming in through our website. Uh, there have been past years where I've had 10 or 15 investor calls a day. And the calls have to go like, hey, I don't have a lot of time to chat. I can answer your questions when you talk about the fund. But what you need to know is that to get in by the end of the year, here's what you do where maybe in January I can spend a couple hours chit-chatting with them about, you know, anything they want to talk about. But December is that crunch time. And here we are right in the middle of it, Jimmy. It's so exciting. It's like college football bowl season and fundraising season for opportunities. Sometimes. I love bowl season uh, as my, my friends and family know, but yeah, fundraising season for opportunity zones, not a bad time of the year either. Uh, what about uh, 2023? Can I get your outlook real quick? Uh, we're running out of time here, Eric, but I wanted to, no, do you have any concerns about the economy heading into 2023? You mentioned high interest rates, higher cost of debt, inflation. What what are what, what are you concerned about the most? And and uh, and what should what should investors be considering when they look to 2023? I mean, everybody right now is watching inflation, and then we're watching the Fed attack it aggressively. I'd love to see inflation stop and start to go down. And when that happens, you're going to feel, you're going to see out there, people are going to start feeling a lot better about the economy. Banks are going to feel more secure about their loans. We're going to see our financing markets for ground up development expand significantly. And that's going to be a huge benefit to us as we go out looking for financing, for example, in our fund to uh, echo project. You know, we only look, we'll start looking probably like in April for that uh, capital stack to build that. So right about that time, I'm hoping that, the feds have increased interest rates to the point where inflation starts to become manageable and under control with some certainty. Folks are feeling better about the economy, financing markets open up, but overall I'm expecting a pretty good 2023. I was pretty optimistic at the beginning of 2022. I mean, 2021 banner year here in the Valley, right? I mean, 2022 started off strong. Since then that uncertainty has really raised its ugly head with inflation. 
if we get that under control and people are feeling better about the economy overall, we're going to have a great 2023. And maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic than other folks, but you know, I'm watching my projects. Uh, do I have a clear path to start construction? You know, create that vertical capital stack to build those buildings. And in a lot of cases, I've got it. I see it. And so I don't feel um, I don't feel those negative impacts of the uncertainty that a lot of folks you know feel out there. So that's kind of how I feel about 2023. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. It'll be a happy new year, you know? Good. Well, I wanted to end there, but then I just thought of one more question I got to ask you before we go. And it is, what about OZ legislation? Do you think it's going to pass before the end of this year? And what would it mean to you and your investors if it does pass? Are you concerned that it, it won't pass potentially? And, and, and what, what impact might, might, that have if it doesn't get passed on on your sure. fund and investors. So the new legislation that's out there, you know, lots of folks have been talking about it. Um, it does a couple things for opportunity zone funds, but the two major positive benefits for investors is it gives everyone that 15% discount when they pay their taxes on their initial capital gains event. So that a couple of years ago, you got a 15% discount, then it went to 10%. This year, if you invest, 0%. It would retroactively give everyone that 15% discount. So that'd be awesome. I have over 800 investors here in between fund one and fund two. They're all going to be super happy about that. The second thing that I that it does, I think is even more important is it pushes out the date they have to pay those capital gains taxes from 2027 to 2029. Now, that doesn't seem like such a big deal, but all of our investors and you know the way that we structure our funds is to have cash distributions to our investors prior to when they need to pay their taxes so they don't have to come out of pocket to pay those taxes because they invested those funds into our fund. Um, so having those distributions is important. And we get those distributions when we build our buildings and we have those refinance events. We have plans in place for both fund one and fund two to have those refinance events prior to 2026, uh, returning at least 40% of our investors' initial investment, which is called the minimum amount they need to pay their taxes. But if that extension happens where they don't have to pay them until 2029, it sure gives us a little breathing room. You know, perhaps we can make different deals or do better deals. Uh, if we want to wait on a project because we don't like the terms, we're not worried about waiting because we don't have that kind of hanging over our heads and our investors' heads. So we would really like it if that passed. Now, will it pass? You and I, Novograd, the whole world, we've been saying it's going to pass here before the end of the year. I do think that eventually it's going to pass, whether it's this year or next year. But will it pass before the end of the year? We're still pretty optimistic it's going to pass before the end of the year. Uh, I check with my partner, Sean, every day, who's on Novogratz National Working Group that advises the Treasury and the IRS. And so far, it's no update, no update, no update. But they'd always said it would be after elections and before the end of the new year. So here we go. Will it be? We, uh, we, are, we are waiting with bated breath, Jimmy, just like everybody should. We're, we're going to find out very shortly here, Eric. Hopefully, we find out that it did get passed in the next... Uh two or three weeks here before the end of the year, that would be great. And if not, then uh, fingers crossed for it to pass at some point in 2023. Uh, Eric, it's been great speaking with you today. If we have any listeners or viewers out there who are liking what you have to say, maybe they want to talk with you some more or learn a little bit more about Urban Catalyst, where can they go to do that? Uh, you can learn more about us by visiting urbancatalyst.com. Urbancatalyst.com, fantastic. And of course, for all of my listeners and viewers out there today, I will, as always, have show notes available for today's episode 
at our website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there I'll have links to all of the resources that Eric and I discussed on today's show. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Eric, again, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, if I don't see you again, happy new year. We're, we're getting there. You too, Jimmy. Take care. Thank you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 